Uh, would you join me in prayer one more time? <clears throat> Lord God, we um, come to your word again. We, we do pray that um, you would pierce our hearts now. Uh, we pray for uh, not just ourselves, but we pray for our brothers and sisters in the many, many churches who have met today and are meeting and will meet. Um, Lord, we pray that uh, as we come to your word and think about the cross, that all of our achievements, all of our successes and accomplishments and accolades and and all the things that we take pride in, all of the earthly things that we love so much, we pray that they would become small to us tonight in the shadow of the cross. We pray that uh, you would help us to see your, your amazing love, help us to understand it, and, and even more than that, help us to treasure it. I know this message is quite familiar for most of us. We, we do pray that none of us would walk away from here unchanged this evening. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, our main text for the evening is going to come from Luke chapter 23, uh, which is Luke's account of uh, the crucifixion. Um, and we'll read a, a select portion of it, verses 32 through 47. Uh, Jesus has been uh, already betrayed, he's been put on trial, he's been sentenced to death, and now he, is, he has already made the, the walk to uh, the place, or he is in the process of making the walk to the place where he'll be crucified, and that's where we pick up in verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are not under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. Amen. Uh, now, there's, there's an interesting phenomenon amongst 
humanity, and I don't think I'm alone in this happening to me, where when we find something that's very, very precious or valuable to us or important, when we find it, we love to just kind of pour over it and examine it and just look it over so, so closely. Uh, and so this, this is what happens when you go to uh, museums, right? If you were to go to, I'm pretty sure it's over in Europe, the Mona Lisa and go to the museum, uh, you don't just walk by the Mona Lisa and say, there it is, that's cool. Uh, no, you'll see crowds upon crowds upon crowds standing there to get a, a good, good look at that famous painting. Um, the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. is a great place for this as well. They have a lot of just really cool artifacts and a lot of things that uh, I went there as a kid on a family vacation once and still remember a lot of things. Uh, the ruby slippers from Wizard of Oz. Um, the command center from the very first lunar landing. Uh, just a lot of very, very cool things. Uh, a lot, and actually, a lot of the men here got, a, got to experience this a few weeks ago at our men's retreats. Because uh, at our men's retreats, we had a former World Series winning baseball pitcher turned pastor come and speak. Thankfully, this man has is, is, uh, become a Christian and a pastor and is a little bit less worldly than he used to be. And so he actually got, he brought and let everybody touch and hold his extremely expensive, valuable World Series ring. Uh, now I'm a big sports fan in general. Um, I, I could have sat there and just looked at that ring and just looked at every diamond, every, every crevice, just everything about that ring for an hour if I wanted to. Uh, it's just so cool. Uh, this is what we do when we find something precious and valuable. As a, as a parent of young kids, you, you do this when you have a new baby for the first time, don't you? Do you find yourself not just kind of staring at this baby while they sleep and just looking at every square inch of their face and their hair um, on the good days, at least? Um, the cross and the gospel of Jesus Christ, it, it's been compared a million times over to a, a diamond that stands against the, the black backdrop of sin. And it just shines so brightly. And so what we're going to do tonight is just kind of take that diamond and just spin it around a little bit and examine just a few of the facets of that diamond. Just a few of the facets of that good news. And we're going to do that through actually the words that Jesus spoke on the cross um, now, while Jesus was, was on the cross, we have exactly seven recorded sayings of his that he spoke while hanging there. Three of them are in Luke, uh, numbers one, two, and seven. And in each, each one of them really is, is just a, a, a microcosm of the gospel itself and everything that Jesus did on the cross. Each one of them could, could easily have their own sermon. Uh, but for tonight, we'll just briefly sort of take a glimpse at each one of those words and see what, what Jesus himself says about what he is doing. So the first one comes in verse 34. Um, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This very first word, Jesus is, is speaking, really praying to his Father about his executioners. And this word surely has to be one of the most, just, just astounding of Jesus' seven words on the cross. B 
because he's praying for his executioners, which is crazy. Jesus has been, he's been whipped at this point. He's been beaten. He's been forced to carry his cross. He's had nails pounded through his hands and feet. Um, and, and just, there are, I mean, a dozen different things that makes this word so incredible. One of them being, these executioners have not said sorry. <laughs> they have not repented of their sin. They've not shown any contrition. Um, they don't seem to be sad for what they're doing. And yet, Jesus is interceding and praying for these men who hate him and are killing him. And really, by doing that, by doing that he's actually taking um, just one of those verses in Isaiah from earlier, and he's, he's fulfilling it. He's fulfilling the words of that prophecy at the very end when it says, He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. While on the cross, he's interceding for sinners. And really, even, even more than just fulfilling that prophecy, he, he's actually exemplifying for us his own words from earlier in his ministry. When he says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. It's an incredible thing that Jesus says. Uh, one, one author, Arthur Pink, points out that... Um, we, we don't see Jesus crying out for pity as the first thing that he says. We, we don't see him pronouncing a curse on the men who are committing the most just heinous crime in all of history. Jesus is not thinking about himself in this moment. He's thinking about the eternal state of the souls of his murderers. It's incredible. We, we can't help but recognize Christ's heart of mercy and forgiveness in this word. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't excuse their sin when he says um, that they don't know what they're doing. On the contrary, they, they, they fully should have known what they were doing, and it is totally inexcusable. But Jesus really, in his prayer, is sort of recognizing and confessing just how helpless and powerless these men are to see the truth. And so we see that God takes the initiative to forgive us in this word. Not just that he has to take the initiative to forgive, but he actually does it. And so despite everything that, that we have done against him as sinners, despite everything that we are doing, despite everything that we, we will do to sin against God, God, with his merciful heart, takes that first step to bridge the gap between himself and sinners. Um, now, just sort of as a, as a side note to, uh, to this passage, I just felt like reading through it, there could have been like four or five different types of sermons here, um, different main points that you could go off of. One of them, which is very interesting, is that in each of these words— on the face of it, Jesus looks very weak, but deep down, he is in absolute control of everything going on. And he has all the power in the world right now, all the authority, right? Even as he's being crucified, he is the one saying, you need to be forgiven. 
He has the authority in this moment. And for them, he, he, he prays for them. Um, and, and of course, we don't know the eternal state of these men. We don't know what happened. But for us, we can say that, that with all of that power and authority that Jesus wields, what he tells us is, you are forgiven. He is merciful, and he blots out your transgressions. And he says, I don't care what you've done. I don't care of all, all the nasty things that you've done in the past. I forgive you. It, it's a fantastic, just incredible word that he speaks to his executioners. The second one comes in, in verse 43. Um, he speaks this word to one of the criminals who's being crucified with him. Now, actually, this, this interaction is, is also a great fulfillment of prophecy in that also in Isaiah 53, it says he was numbered with the transgressors. But also, actually, even earlier on in Isaiah 53, it says, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Do you notice, I haven't read that word yet, actually. Verse 43, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. John Calvin says about this statement, Although Christ had not yet made a public triumph over death, still he displays the efficacy and fruit of his death in the midst of his humiliation. In other words, even before his sacrifice is complete, Jesus is seeing the salvation that it's bringing, and he's seeing it in the life of the criminal. Um, so another good, another good sports analogy. I hope you follow sports for this sermon. Uh, we just this past Monday there was the uh, men's college basketball national championship game. Uh, every year they play that tournament. Some years it's a nail biter. It comes down to the very last second, maybe one last shot as the clock is hitting zero. Other times, like this past week, one team is so far out in front that even with a minute, two minutes, three minutes on the clock left in the game, everybody knows what's going to happen. Everybody knows who's going to win. And essentially, almost both teams stop trying. Uh, so you watch the game going on. You see the players on the bench. Sometimes on the court, they're already jumping up and down. You see the fans jumping up and down in the stands because even with, with two minutes left in the game, they know that their team is going to win. And that's a little bit what Jesus is doing here. This is a word of, of, of triumphant, victorious grace. Jesus is almost taunting death and taunting Satan before he's even actually suffered the wrath of God yet. He knows that on the other side of the cross, he will be with his Father in paradise. He knows he's not going to be abandoned to hell, even though... All of, the hum all of humanity around him has condemned him as, as guilty and put him up on a cross. He knows that he is not. And he knows that he will be with his father. But, but also just this interaction and the salvation of this criminal taunts death. Because we have it um, in the other gospel accounts. We don't have it written down here in Luke, but... But both Matthew and Mark tell us that while, while all three of these men were hanging on their crosses, 
At some point, both criminals were mocking Jesus. Both criminals were reviling him. They were both blaspheming him. And at some point, before 12 o'clock noon, this one criminal has come to his senses, his eyes have been opened, and he's confessed Jesus as an innocent man, the reigning king, really God himself. And so actually he takes sort of the, the, this word sort of takes the forgiveness that Jesus prays earlier and it takes it a step farther and it shows us this is not just a sinner who needs forgiveness, but this is a sinner who has come to the end of himself. He's acknowledged his own guilt. He's acknowledged his own hopelessness. He's believed however few words that he heard, he's believed them and he's turned to Jesus in faith and repentance. And so even while Satan is doing his absolute worst to Jesus by killing him, Jesus is snatching one back. Jesus steals one back. He plucks him like a brand from the fire in the midst of Satan's greatest assault. And in a a sea filled with, with mockers and revilers and murderers, this one man is given just a, a beautiful lifeline. And he's a beautiful demonstration of what it means to believe in Jesus. And he's a great example for us of, of what triumphant, victorious grace looks like. A powerful grace that can save anyone at any time. And a powerful grace that will never let you be snatched out of his hand. Thirdly, uh, his, his third word that Luke has speaking on the cross is in verse 46. Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now again, he speaks this word again to his father. But this time, it's about himself. And this word is just an awesome word of, of, of vindication for Jesus. Because really, up until this point, things have just gotten Nothing but worse and worse and worse and worse. All right, so he'd been betrayed by his disciple. He'd been uh, left by all of his friends. He'd gone to trial. He'd been found guilty. He'd been sentenced to death. And at this point, he has taken the cup of God's wrath for three hours, and he's drained it to the dregs. The night has just been progressively getting darker and darker and darker and darker in Jesus' life. And yet, even before we get to Resurrection Sunday, we start to get rays of hope. We get rays of a a sunrise coming up over the horizon. Because Jesus has just finished exhausting God's wrath for sin. And, and, you know, sort of the, the logical connection between That, and this word is, well, can we really be sure? How do we know that he actually drank the whole cup of God's wrath? How do we know there's not just a little bit swirling around at the bottom of the cup still? We know because Jesus is back in the presence of his Father again with this word. So just just think about what... What does sin do to our relationship with God? It separates us from him. 
Right? That's why Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden had to leave Eden after they'd sinned. This one's a little bit less well-known. We actually just talked about this in Bible study this morning. Their son, Cain, who killed Abel, after he had murdered his brother, he gets sent away from the presence of the Lord. You leave God's presence when you're a sinner. That's, that's what hell was for Jesus on the cross, him turning his, his gracious face away from his son and having nothing but wrath. But this, this little prayer to his father shows us that he is back in, on good, in good graces with his father again. This word is an expression of confidence, Confidence in his own eternal security, confidence in his own innocence, confidence that the work really is finished. And uh, if I can paraphrase the author of Hebrews a little bit, Jesus now gets to go home and sit down and rest because everything has been finished. We, we really cannot, we can't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus died on the cross out of exhaustion. Right? We, we cannot make the mistake of, of thinking, you know, he just wasted away and he couldn't take it anymore and he gave up. No, th- this word also tells us that, that Jesus, he, he loudly cried this out to his Father in prayer. He is giving his Spirit to the Father. He's not letting anybody take it away. Nobody took Jesus' life from him. He willingly gave it up on the cross for the salvation of his people. He's willingly entrusting his soul to his Father, knowing that the Father cannot forsake him, knowing that judgment has been rendered and exhausted and emptied out, and that even though he had been betrayed into the hands of sinners, he never really left the hand of the Father all along. And you can imagine that'd be hard for him to hold on to in that moment. It'd be hard for him to remember that he had still been in the Father's hand, but that's what he confesses. It's a word of vindication and confidence, and it's a word of trust. And it's a good reminder that, that along with Christ, our lives are entrusted to God from birth to death. And just like God could, could, could never again turn his face away from Jesus, He can no more cast you out of his presence. You are with him forever. Uh, The cross is really just this blazing display of God's glory, his power, his love, his heart to save sinners. There's, There's also just a really interesting sort of progression throughout these three words. If you just take one more minute to think about who Jesus is praying about, who is he praying for, and what kind of progression do we make? In his first word, he's praying for people who, who have no idea what, what's going on. They're ignorant. Uh, they, they, they're, they're not repentant in the slightest. They don't care what they're doing. They hate Jesus. They just want to kill this man. In his second word, he is praying to, to a man who has come to the end of his, his own self. He's, fa- he's metaphorically falling at the feet of Jesus and, and, and begging him to save him. And even in the third one, you see, Jesus is praying about himself. 
And he's saying, I can fully entrust myself to my God. And that's the progression that all of us have to go through. Um, We start as hard-hearted sinners. We see our guilt. We fall at the feet of this man who says he forgives us and saves us. And we entrust our lives fully to him. Um, The fact that the cross is such a blazing display of God's glory and his power and his love will not make sense unless you've made that progression already. If you're stuck at phase one, it looks crazy. Everything I've said doesn't make sense. Um, You just see a man who dies. But if you have the eyes to see it, if your heart has been opened to see it, you'll see what what just an incredible display this is of God's heart. We can be confident that we are forgiven, we can be confident of our own future, we can be confident that we are committed to God for the whole of our lives. Uh, Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you for all that the cross means for us, that we no longer have to fear death, we no longer have to fear hell, the guilt of our own sins. Uh, and Father, just as we take in time to think about these things, we do pray that, that the truths that we've heard would, would permeate throughout all of our lives. We do pray that you would, you would infuse the, the mundane and, and frustrating things of life with, with new meaning, new importance, new hope. We do pray that you would drive away all sense of doubt and fear. We pray that you would help us to, to love you with our whole hearts, with all of our strength, with all of our minds. We pray that you would help us to, to truly entrust ourselves to you in all that comes our way. And we ask this.